All right, well, let's, uh, we'll go ahead and open in prayer, and then we want to pick up where we left off last week. There are, there are, new, no, there are no new notes tonight, uh, so it's, you, if you got them last week, you're fine for tonight, and uh, we'll just continue where we were. Uh, we're going to be in Chapter 4, uh, so we'll be starting with that tonight. All right, so I'll open in prayer, and then we'll, we'll begin. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to look into your word, and we just pray for wisdom and discernment. Pray that you would help us as we seek to apply this wisdom. Uh, we've seen so many venues, uh, even in these last few weeks and months with the election and other things going on where we need uh, to apply wisdom, and we often see wisdom not applied. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us insight and help us to uh, to know your word better and to know you better and to walk with you. And so I pray that you'd bless our time tonight and our discussion. I pray that it would be fruitful and that you would be glorified, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, last week we uh, we concluded with uh, page 92, I think, on the notes. Uh, we're looking at speech five. Uh, just by way of, of rehearsal to remember where we've been. You remember we started with the book of Proverbs and we uh, saw the title and the preamble. The title and the preamble set the trajectory for the whole book. So this is 1127. And 1-7 gives us the theme of the book of Proverbs. Can anybody remember what the theme of Proverbs is or what the theme verse Proverbs 1-7 says? Does anybody remember? The fear of the Lord, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Okay, so uh, the fear of the Lord is the pathway toward wisdom. And then we uh, jump into the father speeches. There are ten father-son speeches and they alternate between calls to attention, where he's trying to get the uh, the attention of the young man, and then calls to remember, where he's encouraging him toward remembering the command and obeying the command. So we saw the first one was a call to attention, and this was against gang violence. Then we had an interlude where Lady Wisdom very confrontationally tries to get the attention of the young man and say, if you don't listen to what I'm saying, you'll pay for it eventually, and then I will scoff because it's sort of an I told you so moment that you weren't heeding my cries. Uh, So after that, we go to speech two, another call to attention where the father is saying, these are all the encouragements to pursue wisdom because it will rescue you from all these people that will try to destroy you. And then speech three uh, comes after... Uh, comes after that and is a call to remember. Then we have an excursus, Lady Wisdom, again, a beatitude in chapter 3. And then we come to speech 4, which is a call to attention, and speech 5, which is a call to attention. So last time we were looking at speech 5, this call to attention, and uh, he began in verse 1 of chapter 4, Listen, my sons, to a father's instruction, pay attention and gain understanding. Okay, so we worked through this and uh, saw that it's really talking about... uh, the tradition of wisdom. In other words, the son needs to learn to get wisdom not only from the father, but the father is transmitting the wisdom that his father taught him. So we see possibly up to four generations within the speech. And you remember on page 92, I think we concluded here last week with looking at how uh, the word that Solomon uses here, uh, that he was young and tender cherished by his mother in 4.3 is the same word used to describe Rehoboam in Chronicles, Second Chronicles, that he was young and tender or irresolute. 
And so the idea was uh, Rehoboam, who should have been passing on wisdom, is kind of the stopping point for wisdom because his own behavior is foolish. So he doesn't apply these principles. All right, so that was Rehoboam. So I wanted just to end here uh, on page 92 at the bottom uh, by talking about uh, traditions. Uh, we, of course, are uh, in a, a church here that probably could be labeled by a lot of different things, right? <coughs> when someone asks you, what religion are you? It's a sort of question that can be answered on multiple layers, right? I could say I'm a Christian, but that doesn't necessarily distinguish uh, me from what a lot of Roman Catholics would claim. So I could say I'm a Protestant, for instance, uh, and I could say I'm Baptistic, and so I could use all of these other labels. Well, part of the heritage of being a Protestant and being a Baptist is that we have certain theological distinctions that characterize how we worship, how we understand the Bible, and all these sorts of things. And one of those is uh, there's a tendency toward uh, what we might call low church in the sense that we don't have often a very formalized liturgical approach to worship, right? We don't have uh, the preacher coming in a robe. Uh, we don't have necessarily a set uh, liturgical order to things. And I'm not necessarily advocating for or against that. I'm just kind of expressing how we worship the Lord and how we do church. Well, one of the things that we in that tradition grapple with is how much should we pay attention to tradition and how much should we uh, not let tradition eclipse the Bible? Do you see what I'm saying? The tension there is, is tradition good? Is tradition bad? Uh Paul talks about tradition right in the New Testament. He says that uh, what he's handed down to Timothy and others needs to be transmitted to the next generation. Uh, so I think we tend to be somewhat suspicious of traditions that might eclipse the Bible, but I think we ought to pay heed to traditions that are valid and biblical and necessary. And I think this speech in particular is talking about the wisdom of traditions, Right? I often tell my seminary student, if you've come up with a new doctrine that nobody in the history of the church has ever thought of, you need to be careful because you're probably being a little too novel in the sense that you may have uh, put something together that perhaps uh, someone else has already seen to be erroneous in some fashion. But at the same time, we need to, I think, accept tradition and value it. So this little paragraph at the bottom of 92 talks about this. So let me just mention this. Uh, in spite of the frequent failings in handing down traditions, the passage affirms these traditions ideally stabilize a society in producing discerning, perceptive leaders. Now, we would admit sometimes traditions need to be changed, right? Because traditions might mean uh, people are so set in their ways they really uh, have blinders on that don't allow them to see beyond what they... Th this is the way we've always done it, that sort of mentality, which often... <laughs> Uh, occurs in churches in particular after members have been there a long time. On the other hand, having traditions is a good thing, right? So uh, many who uh, voted yesterday uh, voted for a platform that seeks to minimize culture, what would have seen as cultural deterioration by affirming some of the values and traditions that have habitually been part of the U.S., right? So we value tradition in some sense. And I think that's what this speech is saying as well. 
Uh, I go on to say this occurs by lengthening one's perspective beyond the blind spots of the current generation. And I think G.K. Chesterton said it this way, which is memorable and helpful. He says, tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. All Democrats object to men being disqualified by the, by the accident of birth. Tradition objects to their being disqualified by the accident of death. Okay, so the idea here being tradition carries on the customs in such a way that it stabilizes society. Okay, this is why many of the Proverbs later on in the book says, say, do not move the ancient landmark, right? And I think there's uh, different nuances to that. One is the landmarks denoted property boundaries. So in a certain sense, it's a way to, to grab land surreptitiously if you're moving that marker. But in another sense, it's be careful uh, don't move something that's been there a long time without knowing why you're moving it in the first place, right? So uh, it's not, uh, you know, I think it's uh, Chesterton who also says, when we say something is old-fashioned, that means at one point it was fashioned. In other words, it, it was made and it had some currency at some point, so we shouldn't just reject it because it's a tradition. Okay, so all that to say, I think uh, this speech tends to affirm that wisdom lies in listening to the elders. Uh, this is what is an important component of learning wisdom because young people have a tendency, and I say this because I was there myself, uh, to, to think that they have a fresher, wiser perspective without really giving uh, heed to what their elders are saying. So part of the wisdom process is learning to listen to those who have gone through before you uh, without out of hand dismissing their advice. This is what Rehoboam failed to do, and that's why the kingdom split. It was a disastrous policy because he wouldn't listen to his elders. So tradition is important. All right, so having said that, uh, page 93, we want to look now at that. the next speech. It begins in 410, so we're in Proverbs 410. And this is speech 6, so we're more than, a little more than halfway through here. And this is also a call to attention. Okay, so I'll read and you can follow along, then we'll discuss it a little bit. He goes on and says, Listen, my son, accept what I say, and the years of your life will be many. I instruct you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble. Hold on to instruction, do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way. For they cannot rest until they do evil. They are robbed of sleep till they make someone stumble. They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. The path of the righteous is like the morning sun shining ever brighter till the full light of the day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Okay, interesting here, this idea of the two paths the two paths so uh the sage begins here to listen my son accept what i say and the years of your life will be many and then he goes on to talk about the value of wisdom 
uh, and he describes it through several metaphors. So I want to pause for a moment and just uh, hear back from you. What are some observations that you make about this particular speech and perhaps things that are repeated within the speech or what you might see as prominent themes uh, within these verses? Uh, anyone want to offer some feedback on that? And any uh, Anything stand out to you? It seems to me that he's telling the son that he better really learn wisdom because when you when that's inculcated in you and it's part of you, then when you need to make a decision, you're going to be able to draw on that wisdom and then you won't stumble and you you're less likely to get pulled in with the gangs or right. Right. Okay, so in other words, if if you're really internalizing this wisdom You'll be ready for whatever comes your way. And so uh, whether it's a need to run or walk, you'll be ready and you'll rise to the challenge, so to speak, because you'll have been prepared. Right? Yeah, I think that's a valuable lesson. Paul. I, it immediately made me think of the Sermon on the Mount about entering the straight gate, you know, for straightest way. Okay. Wide gate okay. Right, so this idea of straight paths... Okay, if, if we say straight paths or a, a narrow gauge, so to speak, on the path that we're to go to, what is that presupposing the wrong kind of path is? Crooked, tortuous, right? That it goes this way and that. And that's sort of the idea of being deviant, devious, being crooked, being twisted or perverse. Uh, these are all words that are used in the Old Testament as well as in modern parlance about uh, people that are, have what we call moral turpitude, meaning they're twisted or perverted. So he's to avoid that by going along the straight and narrow path. Uh, when, when I think of this, I often think of uh, one of the books that you know is is probably outside the Bible one of the most influential Christian books ever written. That's Pilgrim's Progress, right? Where Christian uh, is going on the way to the celestial city, and he's often tempted to get off the path, right? Uh, bypass meadow and other things. And so uh, if he fails to realize the urgency of staying straight on the path, he often pays in the end uh, through some sorrow uh, that comes as a result of that. All right, so the young man is admonished here to stay on that path. All right, any other observations? Yes, ma'am. Um, the protection that avails those who seek after and um, maintain firm hold of wisdom and following it. Okay. So uh, it will, uh, particularly verse 13, right, that if he holds on and he guards it, it will be his life, right? So it will encircle him and protect him. It will preserve his life. Uh, this is really a matter of, of life and death for the young man. It may not seem that way. Uh, often when we're young, we don't realize the ramifications of decisions that we make. I can think of uh, examples in my life where it really seemed like a 50-50 split, should I do this or that? And almost everything I've done since has been a result of that decision. So it's, it's critical to be ready and to be wise, and uh, wisdom will offer a protection against making that bad decision that will affect your life. All right, any other thoughts? All right, let me just point out a couple things. Notice uh, 
the imagery here, for instance, in verse 11, he talks about the way of wisdom and paths. Verse 12, he talks about steps. Okay, uh, verse 14, he talks about the path of the wicked and the way of evildoers. Okay, and then verse 15, do not travel or turn, go on your way. Uh, verse 18, the path of the righteous. Verse 19, the way of the wicked. Uh, we think of way, we, we may think of habit of life, but this word uh, is very similar to the idea of path. It, it's a concourse, it's, it's a way or a thoroughfare that the wicked or the righteous walk on. So we see clearly here he's using pathway imagery. Uh, why does wisdom so frequently use pathway imagery? Have you ever thought about that? In other words, is there something intrinsic about a path that lends itself to wisdom? It's a journey. Life is a journey. Okay, life is a journey. Yeah, that's true. It is. There are pitfalls along the way, uh, sometimes detours, but it is a journey. It's a walk. Especially with this verse, these verses, like wisdom is like light and foolishness is like darkness. Right. Having wisdom, you can see what's on the path and how to navigate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So our our family, we're not really campers, but two summers ago, a family invited us to go camping. So, you know, as long as they helped us and brought everything, we said, sure, we go. Uh, But I just remember that when I'm camping, I'm out of my element because I'm, you know, I enjoy a certain routine of life. And... When I'm in a tent and I need to use the restroom in the middle of the night and I don't know where my flashlight is, it can be a troublesome venture, right? Just to stumble my way down. And I don't know how many times I, I stumped my toe on different things, roots, uh, tree roots and all this sort of thing because I didn't know where I was going, right? So it, it's a great metaphor because it works so well. The closest uh, tree. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. That, that's an option. Uh, unfortunately, it was a mixed crowd and I didn't really want to go that way. Uh, anyway. They were all in bed. <laughs> right. Next time, next time. Uh, so anyway, the path of the wicked is that deep darkness. They're groping. It reminds me of uh, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah that they they became blinded and they, they wore themselves out trying to find the door. Uh, and that's a, a good picture of the fool who doesn't know where he is. You know, how many people in, in the larger world are just aching to know what's the meaning of life, what's the purpose. They don't know, and they're just kind of lost in this darkness. Phyllis, you had a thought? The snares that is are spoken of are the same snares we face today. There, there are people in our lives who, who want, miserable human beings who want everybody around them to be miserable, to be in the same state of desperation or depression that they are, and it... It's a path of self-destruction. Right. And if we participate in it, we become ensnared in it ourselves. Right. It's this whole election business and <clears throat> a whole conglomerate of that. I mean, it's... I'm glad it's over. Yeah, I'm glad it's over. <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah, it's, it's easy to get ensnared uh, in different mm-hmm. things. And so, um, yeah, I could say a lot about that, but I'll... I'll refrain some comments, but it's it is good to keep yourself on the right path so you're not caught up in a snare, right? Being distracted. Other thoughts? Well, yes, sir. I was to say that uh, the the goal 
or the result of taking a path is inevitable. It's like if you're on a path and you're headed towards something, you're going to reach a certain end. Right. Right. So it implies movement toward a goal. So it's orderly. And, and we could unpack this and really talk at length about what it means to be on a path, but it's it signifies you're going somewhere. You're not just aimlessly moving. There's progression and order and uh, purpose to what you're doing. And that's why it's a good metaphor for wisdom because, uh, you know, knowing the true God, we would say our, our lives are not aimless and, and rudderless, uh, desultory. Uh, we're going toward a specific path and uh, uh, moving toward a goal. And so that gives us direction and orderliness, and it's it's significant. Somebody else had a comment over here? Yeah, but it kind of really, really reiterates what you just said. If we're going, working our life towards wisdom, and you've gone through one steps one, two, three, and four, you can't jump to ten. Right. You, know, you must go through five, six, seven, and eight. Right. And yeah. uh, and and nine too. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Might have been corrected. Right. Right. <laughs> but but no. that's and that's the path. If you're going to Mackinac Bridge, you can't leave Lansing and then immediately be at Mackinac. Right. Yeah, and I tend to be impatient, so it's hard because there's a tendency to want to find a shortcut, right? It's part of the impatience of the modern age. Uh, but wisdom says, no, there is a path, so we have to walk that path and get to where we're going in the right stages, right? That When you're young, you're always thinking about what's the next thing. If I just, you know, find the right girl, if you're a guy, if I could just get the job, if I could get through college, if I could do this... And now I'm sort of in the middle portion of life and, and at some point realize that I can't keep saying that because my life will be over before I realize it. So I need to enjoy what God gives me at each stage, right? And so walk with wisdom. All right, any other thoughts about this? Yeah. I find it interesting that the, the wicked person spends a whole lot of energy, time, and effort cause the person who chooses to take the path of wickedness to stumble. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're waiting. The evil person, the evil, <coughs> evilness is waiting to cause that person who goes the wrong way to stumble. They lose sleep. They're, they're staying awake just to see who they can cause to stumble. Right. Right, they get some sort of sadistic glee out of yeah, uh, destroying other people. I think it. I think it goes deeper than that. I really think it has a lot to do with the misery that a person who is living bound in sin as their regular routine of life. It is a miserable place to be, and unless they do what we must do, which is to turn from it turn toward God, turn toward the person who can change us from within toward the outside, then then their alternative is to drag others down with them. Right. Yeah, and I think it, it's both. Um, the Germans have a word for it. They call it Schadenfreude, which is the joy of others' pain. Uh, so there is a certain delight I think some people find in, in seeing other people stumble. Like This is pretty obvious on the internet, right? If, if there's some celebrity scandal People get some purient delight out of seeing that and vicariously watching their their self destruction, 
right? So people tend to do that. But we could say this as a culture at large. People are not neutral, right? They're either on one path or the other. This is how Proverbs would characterize them. So they're either on the path of deep darkness and folly and actively pursuing to take others with them, or they're on the path toward wisdom and righteousness and seeking the company of fellow travelers on this path to make sure that they're uh, going the right way. That's, I think, the genius of the local church for the believer is we have a, a company of fellow travelers who are committed to the same truth, serve the same God, and so we're united in one body, and so we can admonish and encourage each other toward the right path, and that's what the sage is saying here. All right, good, good comments. Any other thoughts on this? All right, let me make a few observations here. Um, verse 13, in the middle of 93, I say uh, the translation, it is your life. It really could be translated, your very life is at stake. Uh, so the young man is, is admonished here to guard wisdom because your life is at stake. So the idea is one's commitment to wisdom, even to its corrective disciplinary side, is a matter of life and death. Uh, it may seem like we're over-speaking here, but this is really, I think, the truth of the matter, that not embracing and holding on to wisdom will destroy a person. Uh, it may not happen immediately, but there is that progression that eventually leads in the demise. Okay, also verse 17, uh, where it says, The bread of wickedness. They eat the bread and they drink the wine. Uh, this is kind of a, a play on words here. Uh, the word for eat and for bread are different versions of the same word. The idea is that these individuals eat up wickedness as though it were food and drink up violence as if it were wine. Simply put, fools and morally bankrupt people who are one and the same in Proverbs are nourished by their wickedness and their hearts are enlivened. Like It's the inflammation of wine. You know, that, uh, that buzz, they're enlivened by their violence. So to them, it's their daily nourishment. I uh, remember when Jesus uh, sent his disciples to go buy provisions and they came back and he was, of all things, talking to the Samaritan woman. And what did he say? My meat, my bread, food is to do the will of my father. The idea was he, he got some sort of a nourishment from obedience to the Father. And here is the converse. The wicked person nourishes themselves. They, they eat it up. This is their daily provision. They, they delight so much in it that they, they get some sustenance out of wickedness, violence, and this uh, delight in seeing it perpetrated upon other people. Uh, and that's what a testament, right, to the wicked person. All right, verse 18. Let me just try to say a word about this. This is a difficult verse here. The uh, NIV has the path of righteousness is like the morning sun. And that's one option here for translation, but it's a, it's a difficult one to really understand. What does it mean to say the path of the righteous is like the morning sun? Uh, we might read that and say, well, it, it's something about brightness. Uh, what does it really mean? The, the verse literally says this, as I note, the path of righteous ones is like a gleaming light going and becoming light until the day is established. 
Okay, that's a literal translation of the Hebrew text. Uh, so what does this mean? It's a gleaming light going and becoming light. Uh, to really understand it, you have to sort of uh, paraphrase it. And so in the middle of that paragraph, I have this idea. The path of the righteous is like the dawning light. It shines more and more brightly until the full day arrives. So what does this mean? I think the essence or the point here is this. The wise young man, if he chooses the right path, it becomes more and more luminous until by the end of his journey, it's as bright as the full day. Okay, I don't know how many early risers we have here. I tend to be an early riser myself. Uh, my wife, on the other hand, not so much. So I think God compliments us very well that way. Uh, but I enjoy getting up early, particularly if I have coffee. Uh, and it's fun to watch the sun come up and see how uh, things that were dark become light, right? And so the idea here is the righteous man can can see things, but as he goes farther and farther along, he gains more and more light. So this is uh, a good metaphor for the beauty of wisdom. As you grow and age, that you gain more and more experience and wisdom and knowledge. This is why... Uh, you know, Proverbs presents those with gray hair as uh, those who deserve respect for the station of life to which they've attained. And this is the idea of tradition that we are, uh, as we go along, uh, we are giving more and more light because we've, we've put things together. And so this is why I always enjoy uh, talking to those who are in my line of work who've gone before me and done it for 40 years because they have so many insights to give me that I need. And this should be what we're all striving for, right? As we're growing and maturing in life, how can we show light to others and help them uh, as we're serving the Lord and as we have wisdom? All right, next page, page 94. Some more thoughts about uh, this particular uh, section. And really, I just have have two here. Uh, Number one, something I've alluded to already. This section is marked by a high concentration of words related to paths. So, for instance, there are key terms such as way, which is just another way of saying a a path. Course, step, path, and then there are many verbs of motion. Lead, walk, run, impede, enter, stroll down, pass through, avoid, trip up, and stumble. These are all different verbs about motion and going. So, so the essence here is, is about a travel down the right path, the path of wisdom. The father recapitulates themes from his first speech. Remember, the first speech was, uh, if sinners entice you, do not consent, do not go in the path with them. That was the first speech. And so now the father is uh, sort of echoing that again in this particular speech. And uh, Norman Habel has uh, a section about this. And uh, he talks about the two paths here. The first of the two ways is designated the way of wisdom. And this way is characterized by straight tracks, an image that has the idea of a true course or honest way. The underlying metaphor continues to remain that of a straight road free from tortuous and dangerous byways. Okay, so as, as we've met, uh, already mentioned, this is the straight and narrow road. It's an open highway where men may run and not fall. It shines brightly. The lamp of instruction lights the way. Okay, so uh, 
there's a lot of interesting imagery here about this way and the way that we should walk. And this is why I think Jesus echoes wisdom thinking in much of his teaching and speeches. Uh, he's borrowing concepts from the wisdom literature. All right, and then I have a quote there at the bottom about this idea of journey. And uh, the, the reason a pathway lends itself so well to this is uh, much of Israel's experience in the Old Testament and even our experience in the New Testament is that of journey, right? Doesn't the Apostle Paul often use the metaphor to walk, right? To walk in the light, to walk in the spirit, to have your manner of life or your concourse of life to be uh, characterized by wisdom. And Terence Fretheim, who uh, is an Old Testament scholar, uh, he noted this, and, and there's a quote here. I just want to pick up a few things from this. He says that journey is a basic metaphor in the ancestral story. So really from the beginning of Israel, think about Abraham. Abraham was a walking man, right? He's picked from Ur of the Chaldees, and he's basically given a very summarized statement, uh, go to the land that I'm going to give to you. And he, so he doesn't even really know where he's going. He just sets out on the road. So he's a walking man following the Lord. So journey is, is integral to, to their experience. He goes on to say the journey signals something basic about the life of faith and interaction with God and with other human beings. It also mirrors the life of Israel during much of its history. God begins the story by calling Abraham to a pilgrimage. Abraham's faithful response moves him not only to Canaan, but through it all the way to Egypt and back again. Remember, he's told to walk the length and breadth of the land. The story culminates with journeys as Abraham again heeds God's command and travels with Isaac to the Mount of Sacrifice. Uh, one of the greatest, I think, narratives of the Old Testament, Genesis 22. Followed by the journey of Abraham's servant to find a wife for Isaac. In between, there are several journeys, but the metaphor also functions at another level as we observe how Abraham's faith works itself out in interaction with God and outsiders. So the idea being walking and journeying is a metaphor for life, and that's why wisdom here lends itself to this metaphor. We want to be traveling the right path. Okay, so a uh, helpful uh, mention of that. All right, next page, 95. Uh, last thing about this speech, the promise that the years of life may be many for you echoes the promise of life and blessing for obedience to the Torah, to the law in Deuteronomy 30. I just want to bring this passage up. This is one of the uh, most significant passages of the Pentateuch of the Torah, uh, Deuteronomy 30. Uh, you can either listen or turn there if you have a Bible, but in Deuteronomy 30, the Israelites are poised on the plains of Moab, getting ready to enter the promised land. And Moses tells them they have a choice between life or death. If they obey, it will be life. If they don't obey, it will be death. And he begins in verse 16, and he says this, For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and cursings, curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. 
and he will give you many years in the land. He swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, so the idea here is obedience brings blessing. This is what Israel is told uh, in the Pentateuch. Okay, so here uh, we see the principle is that wisdom will enhance the young person's life as he travels this journey uh, and that the Lord will bless him with the years of his life being many, as verse 10 says. All right, so that's the end of that speech. Let's go now to speech seven. Okay, speech seven. And uh, this is the, the final speech before the three warnings against outside women. So uh, we've now reached speech seven, and uh, it's sort of a hinge speech uh, to uh, summarize the earlier speeches in a certain sense and prepare for what's coming. And so he makes some statements here, some of which are probably some of the most well-known verses uh, in Proverbs, particularly verse 23. All right, so I'll read this and you can follow and then we'll make some comments. All right, 420. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. Okay, so he begins here in the customary way. My son, pay attention. Okay, and then uh, it's a shorter speech, but he's really giving several imperatives that seem to walk to, to, to stress the same basic idea. So what observations do you notice here about what the father says in this particular speech? What's the emphasis that he's trying to make? Any thoughts? Notice any terms uh, being repeated or guard yourself carefully. Okay, guard yourself carefully. All right. Yeah. Notice the how many imperatives here have this idea of uh, keeping or guarding. This is a uh, similar two words in Hebrew that can mean both keep and guard. So, for instance, twenty one keep. Right. Uh, verse twenty three guard. Verse twenty four keep your mouth. Keep corrupt talk. Okay, and then he's to give careful pat, uh, thought uh, without turning right or left. Okay, so there's uh, protective imagery here. Any other observations? Uh, while you're on the path, uh, keep your eyes straight ahead. Right, so he's to concentrate his attention rather than to be distracted. All right, we've probably never lived in an age in human history where it is so easy to be distracted. If you think about what the Internet offers uh, in terms of uh, perpetual diversion, right? It's easy to be distracted. 
but of course, this is in a context where there's no internet, so what's the idea of distraction here? It's being allured off the right path. So it's being uh, tempted and enticed to follow those who would corrupt and turn you from the truth, this gradual, progressive, downward fall. Uh, so he's to avoid that. All right, any other observations or thoughts? I think it's interesting that uh, it says that wisdom is, I guess, is the, or their words are help to one's whole body. So there must be some, and I think they found that there is some interaction between anger and people with cardiac problems and all these other things. So there seems to be an actual physical component yeah. to this as well. Yeah. No, I think that's right. Uh, <coughs> there's a lot of physicality in this speech. And so, in other words, uh, wisdom isn't simply a mental discipline, uh, but we might say it's kinetic, meaning it involves the whole body. And so notice how, how many references there are to body parts within this passage. So verse 20 is the ear, and you have the sight, the heart. Now, the heart can be metaphorical, uh, but the idea here is uh, it, it's different parts of the body. Verse 22, the whole body is enhanced. And then he goes on to talk again about heart. Verse 24, mouth, lips, eyes. Uh, so, again, it's sort of a catalog of uh, the necessary body parts involved in the pursuit of wisdom. So, uh, we, we could say it this way, be all in, right? Everything. In other words, you're not simply... Uh, giving half effort or uh, when I get around to it, you know, I'll do that. It, you have to be all in. It's it's not something that you can just, uh, when you have time and try to fit it in, but, you know, you're, you're completely committed to this pursuit. Uh, and so uh, all of you is committed. Yes? Along those lines, um, I like that verse 26 gives the idea that... Um, our pursuit is not just aimless. We're to give proper forethought, planning, goal setting right. in our pursuit. It's not aimless. It's not, like you said, it's not winging it. You know, it's thinking about things ahead of time. Right, right. So it's intentional. Very And wisdom is intentional. <laughs> we, we never accidentally stumble upon wisdom right. right that's sort of inimical to what proverbs is about in other words it requires effort this is why uh, in speech three he said don't get discouraged if you're chastened by the lord in other words wisdom doesn't come easy uh if you're climbing a mountain you got to take each step to get to the top it's never easy uh so wisdom requires wholehearted commitment uh, you can't slough off and think you'll be okay. You have to pursue it with, with everything you got, 100% maximum effort. All right? Good thoughts. All right, let me say a few things, and I want to talk particularly about a little bit about verse 23. I don't want to necessarily burst bubbles, but I think this verse is actually saying something that's a little bit different from what we often think it to mean. Uh, verse 23, Let me. I'll just preface it by saying, uh, this is one of those verses that I think, in a certain sense, can be used rightly in this way. But it's it's a verse that uh, counselors often use, right, to help those who are struggling 
uh, with certain types of sin that they need to guard their heart, right? And so the idea is uh, you, you put up a perimeter to protect your heart from outside influences that will tend to corrupt you, to, to guard your heart. I want to suggest that the metaphor, I think, is not protecting from what comes in. It's, it's stopping what goes out uh, from being corrupt, okay? Because this is what uh, almost always this idea of guarding your heart meant in the ancient world, particularly in ancient Egyptian wisdom literature. It wasn't stop bad stuff from coming in. It's stop bad stuff from going out. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about what that means. All right, so the phrase here, uh, verse 23, everything you do flows from it. Uh, the idea is that the heart provides the outcomes of life, the outcomes of life. And so I want to talk a little bit about what this word means. And I have some some technical stuff here uh, about that. If you go sort of toward the middle of the paragraph, uh, one a scholar has suggested that we should translate this, that, that your heart is the source of life. However, as I notice, this idea is sort of vague. What does it mean to say the heart is the origin of life? Uh, Murphy renders this term surges, the surges of life, sort of like a pulsating heart, the surges of life. Uh, but I think the, the evidence from the Dead Sea Scrolls favors a meaning of outcome effects or proceedings. So in other words, what I think this is saying is the consequences, aftermaths, results, and fallout from your life proceeds from the heart and is bound up in the things to which the heart is inclined. Okay, in other words, uh, what your heart goes after, your orientation, will determine the fallout of your life. Okay, isn't this true? We pursue what we love, what we have a passion for, <clears throat> right? Now, we recognize that given uh, the need for discipline, sometimes we, we discipline ourselves in ways that maybe are unpleasant, right? If you're trying to stick to an exercise regimen and you really just don't like getting out there and running, right, uh, it's difficult to do. But even in that, the reason we do it is because we believe the payoff will be worth it. So it, ultimately, it's for something we love, which is to be in shape and to be, you know, maybe uh, lose some weight or whatever it might be. So we're pursuing it for that reason. So ultimately, we're motivated by love. Uh, this is what a theologian called uh, named Jonathan Edwards talked a lot about. Uh, he wrote a, a book called A Treatise on Religious Affections. And the idea there was that when we worship God, we're doing it because we love uh, that love is our motivating principle. And so I think the idea here is where your heart is oriented, that will determine where you are. Didn't Jesus say something along these lines that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also? So the idea is you will pursue uh, what you invest your energy and love in. Okay, the also, also the idea of heart here is uh, when we think of a heart, you know, we think of emotional components. We've been sort of... Uh, in the West, I think, uh, shaped or, or we've, we've been directed to think of love or the heart in terms of Valentine's Day and a romantic sort of attachment. In the Hebrew world, the heart was much more than that. It encompassed intellect, will, and emotion. So we could talk about the heart in the sense that we might use the word mind. Okay, so it's not just a romantic sort of notion, but it's it's your inner person, 
what dictates your behavior. So the heart here is more than just uh, some sort of emotional response. It's everything. It's a uh, intellectual and so on and so forth. All right, page 96. Let me uh, just say a few more things about this. Uh, I have a translational note on verse 25. I'm not going to uh, talk about that. I don't know that it's necessarily germane. Uh, but if you get up, go to the theological exegetical considerations, a uh, few things to note here. Number one, there are metaphorical allusions to various body parts in this pursuit of wisdom. Okay, so here we have uh, the sage enlists the aid of the pupil's ears, eyes, eyelids, heart, feet, and lips. Okay, so uh, all of this is to be used. Newsom says it's an inventory of the body. And with these members is a litany of verbs of orientation. Okay, so if we were to go back and look at uh, the body parts uh, are juxtaposed with all these verbs which talk about orientation, direction, uh, the bent of a person. So here are some of them. Incline, extend, twist away, turn aside, make distance, straight ahead. So the idea is the organs or members are employed for good or evil and they're directed by the orientation of one's heart. Okay, this is, isn't this uh, all through the New Testament, right? That uh, doesn't Paul say this in the book of Romans that, uh, that we are not to uh, yield our members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield them unto God, Romans 6. So the idea here is your body parts will act out the bent of your heart. Where your heart is will be visible in how your body pursues where its orientation lies. This is why Jesus says, you know, if your hand offends you, cut it off. It's radical surgery here because the body can draw you away down that wrong path. All right, secondly, in that middle paragraph there, the speech is connected to the previous speech by means of the catchword way, this Hebrew word derek, uh, which envelopes both poems. Uh, both poems insist that the Father's words are life, and both admonish strongly against any deviation from the prescribed path. So this is why I would say uh, this particular section both looks back, it takes up that imagery of the path, and it's looking forward uh, to the heart as a volitional intellectual component because over the next several speeches he's going to talk about uh, the heart that's drawn away after the outside woman and is enticed to follow uh, an adulterous pursuit. All right, bottom of page 96. This is where I want to talk a little bit more about verse 23. All right, if you look again at, at 23 and 24, uh, so if we turn back a page and we look at these verses, remember what we talked about earlier that within Hebrew poetry, the singular defining feature, I would say, is parallelism. Parallelism. So in other words, to really understand what one line is saying, we want to see what the next line says because the next line gives us information that helps us with the first line. Okay, so in this case, if we look at verse 23, within this line it says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. The parallel to this or the next thought is to keep or guard your mouth from perversity. Keep corrupt talk from your lips. Okay, so... Uh, here in 23 and in 24 is the idea of the heart 
and the mouth. Okay. As I note here, this pairing may suggest that the guarding of the heart is connected to controlling speech. This would support the notion that a way in which one guards the heart is by not speaking everything which could possibly emerge from it. Okay, so this is a bit different from how I've been taught this verse and maybe how uh, you've thought of it in the past. Now, the reason that I think this is the right direction to go with this verse is Coptic, who's a commentator, shows how this same thought is expressed in many proverbs in the ancient Near East. For instance, in Egypt... There was a proverb in the instruction of Patahotep, which says, conceal your heart, control your mouth, then you will be known among the officials. Okay, so the idea is concealing your heart, hiding your heart and controlling your mouth go hand in hand. The papyrus Insinger advises, he who guards his heart and tongue will sleep without an enemy. Relatedly, a Sumerian proverb affirms, a heart never created hatred, Speech created hatred. So what I'm suggesting here is when the ancients thought of guarding the heart, I think they would have associated it with inward out rather than outward in. We tend to associate it with outward in. I think they would have associated it with inward out. I note here also that a number of other proverbs within the book match the heart and the tongue. Okay, these are just some examples, but uh, this is a frequent theme in Proverbs, that when you have the heart, it's often paralleled with the mouth or speech. The connection of the heart and tongue also prepare for the next speech in which the lips or words of the seductive woman draw the heart of the foolish young man away from the counsel he's been given. So, understood in this fashion, the, the imperative is not emphasizing protection of what passes into the heart through the eye gate, Okay, so it's not necessarily not necessarily saying simply to guard what comes in. Rather, the sage is emphasizing the young man exhibit control over what proceeds from the heart by controlling his speech. Okay, so he's to guard his heart uh, by not allowing the outcomes of the heart to be those that would damage and destroy his pursuit of wisdom. Okay. Now, do I think that it's wrong to apply it in the sense that I've uh, described that we uh, can't take this verse to mean that we're to be circumspect about what we allow in? Well, of course, you know, I think we have other scriptures as well that give us that same idea that we're to uh, be careful of what we see, what we hear, what we do. Uh, but I think in the context of Proverbs, the primary emphasis of this verse is to uh, guard what proceeds out of your mouth uh, because it could destroy you if uh, there's no restraint on your speech, on your mouth. Okay, so I think that's uh, where this is going. All right, any thoughts about that? Disagreements? Yeah, I, I think you're right on that because in my own paraphrase of what else I've read in the Bible, if you control your tongue, you got the rest licked. Yeah. You know. This is what James says, right? The, the tongue is a fire. It's a world of iniquity. Who can tame it? Uh, you know, he uses several metaphors there to describe it. So, he, so yeah. It's, I was thinking of uh, when Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Yeah, exactly. So the, there is a connection. I guess I haven't always drawn that connection because 
when I think of heart, I just think of internal, like what you ruminate in your mind and all those sorts of things. But I think in the ancient world, it was really connected to uh, what tangibly comes out of you. Uh, and, and we could say this with kids, you know, sometimes that uh, when they blurt out something, you, you at least know what they're thinking and so you can deal with it. But uh, if we're internalizing it, people don't always know what we're thinking. Now, that it can be good or bad. Right. Uh, one of my favorite proverbs from Abraham Lincoln is uh, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open one's mouth and remove all doubt. I love that one. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm a sort of person that I want to be very careful what I say. So that's the idea of guarding the heart. Uh, but at the, on the flip side, there are times where we need to speak. Right. And we need to confront evil or encourage. Uh, it's just that we need to be careful because. The heart orients the whole direction of our life, so we need to be careful what comes out. Okay? Any other thoughts along these lines? All right. Well, uh, the next section is sort of a long one. Uh, I have just a couple minutes. Let me just introduce this, and we'll set it up for uh, next time we work through this. Okay? This is speech eight. And uh, now begins the warnings against the outside woman. And here is the destruction of seduction. All right, so beginning of verse 1. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Turn your ears to my words of insight that you may maintain discretion and your lips preserve, may preserve knowledge. For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to one who is cruel, lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors. And I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sins hold them fast. What a metaphor for sin, right? For lack of discipline, they will die, led astray by their own great folly. All right, so this is speech eight, the destruction of seduction. Uh, This is where the the father uh, gets very specific about the young man's behavior. And this is the one place where he provides a lengthy antidote to that wayward woman, and that is the young man's own wife. Okay, so when we uh, meet again, we'll talk more about this, particularly this section, what does it mean to drink water from your own cistern? Uh, because sometimes there's confusion 
about how verse 16 relates to that. So we'll talk a little bit more about what this means and uh, try to work through this, okay? Our time is up, so we'll uh, resume next time. Thanks for your good attention tonight, and we will we'll see you next time.